Jay Rosen is on holiday assignment this week, so I'm joined by Mike Volkoff to take a look at some of the following stories. Employee poaching as an antitrust claim, bump up provisions in E&O policies, compliance reflections from 2021, should lawyers file suspicious activity reports, Matt Kelly takes a look at fraud in the taxi business. I'm shocked. There is an app for retail ESG investment now. And Marty Lipton looks at board of directors issues in 2022. All this, podcast, reflections on the legacies of John Madden and Harry Reid on this episode of This Week in FCPA. Are you interested in the history of insider trading? You are. Take a listen to one of the latest additions to the Compliance Podcast Network, Classroom Insider, where Professor Karen Woody interviews students in her insider trading class. It's a fascinating way to learn about this interesting topic. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I wanted to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 283 for the week ending. December 31, 2021, the tribute to Madden and Harry edition. With Jay on holiday assignment, we may or may not have been joined by Mike Volkoff. It's still unclear at this point to look at some of the week's top compliance ethics stories in this tribute edition. So if you're not Mike Volkoff, how should I address you? Well, I'm wearing my Dodgers hat and in honor of my uh, my great team, but also uh, given Jay's long loyalty to the Dodgers, uh, I thought I could get as close as I could to Jay in this moment. So, but welcome everybody, uh, Tom. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be with you. It's always uh, a pleasure, uh, and uh, I really enjoy uh, an opportunity to discuss these kinds of issues with you. So, thanks. Well, great. We're going to start off in a little bit different uh, manner this week because we had. Uh, the deaths of two just lions, mountains, and great people in two very different fields. And I really wanted to spend just a couple of minutes honoring both of these, Mike. Uh, The first was John Madden, and the second was Harry Reid. So I'm going to say a few words about John Madden and and just chime in with whatever you might have and then ask you to maybe give some reflections on uh, Harry Reid from your work uh, in D.C. and on the Hill uh, John Madden had at least three separate careers, maybe four. He was the coach of the Oakland Raiders when I fell in love with the Oakland Raiders back in the – he became coach in the early 70s. I was a fan from the late 60s, uh, most memorably from the Heidi game. Uh, that will show you how long I've been watching pro football. Uh, but he won two Super Bowls. He um, then retired uh, because of health issues, and he resisted – the Clarion's call to return to coaching in the NFL, and he went to the broadcast booth. And originally, I was uh, surprised and to be reminded he was paired with Vin Skelly, uh, Mike. But uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, for whatever reason, that didn't work, and he ended up with Pat Summerall, who is my favorite play-by-play guy from CBS. And that's where the magic happened, uh, because Summerall was a straight-up, play-by-play, tell it like it is between the lines, and it allowed Madden to just do the Madden thing, which was explain pro football from a fan's perspective, but with the knowledge of a Super Bowl-winning coach. So uh, he did that at CBS, he did that at Fox, he did that at ABC, and he did that at NBC. Um, So that was sort of career two. Career three, uh, he may be most well-known for a generation younger than us, for uh, EA Sports, Madden, uh, and that's the pro football game developed by EA Sports. Originally, it was uh, monikered by year, so Madden 85, Madden 89, etc., but it, it just became Madden. And he became the force of, uh, face of uh, the gaming industry in pro football from way back when we had cartridges you'd slid in to the online versions we have today. Uh, And then finally, uh, let me also take you back, Mike, a little bit. He was a great pitch man. And my favorite pitch was when he did with Miller Lite. 
where he uh, busted through a bar, uh, yelling and screaming and waving <laughs> yeah. his arms. Uh, he had a couple yeah. of his eccentricities that are, are well worth noting. He's the only sports color guy up until Peyton Manning to host Saturday Night Live. That's how uh, gregarious, ubiquitous, and famous he was. Uh, he also developed an aversion to flying. And so um, Fox got him uh, a bus, a big old Greyhound bus called the Madden Cruiser. And so he would go to football games driving, and he had the cruiser fully decked out uh, with uh, computers and television monitors and uh, would study up uh, while traveling to each game site. And then finally, NBC lured him over with his own train. So uh, it's been a long time since people had their own trains, uh, but Madden did. And uh, he was just, Mike, he was just one of us. He was a big, gregarious guy who obviously loved life. He loved eating. Uh, He loved football. And he could communicate with uh, Joe Q fan in a way that uh, not a whole lot of color guys do. Do you have any uh, thoughts on John Madden? Well, I uh, I share a lot of your enthusiasm and uh, memories. I don't remember him with Vince Scully, which is interesting. But, I mean, to me, he was – him and Pat Summerall, you know, other than sort of the Howard Cosell and Don Meredith days, um, to me, they were sort of the, the iconic uh, football announcers. And um, the other thing about him is, I mean, he was funny. He was just playing out funny while also being uh, extremely interesting. And him and Pat Summerall just played off each other so well. Um, You know, look, he may have been gregarious. He may have been overweight, uh, whatever. He lived till 85, and he lived a full life. So uh, he's definitely one to be missed, but one to also uh, sort of honor as part of our past, uh, that's for sure. Mike, we also had the passing of Harry Reid, who was a lion in the Senate for many years. And I was wondering if you might give us some of your reflections of Harry Reid, how he ran the Senate, how he ran uh, when he was minority leader, how he was to deal with, and really get a sense of your views of Harry Reid the man. Well, look, uh, Harry Reid was an extraordinary leader. Um, You know, no matter what your politics, uh, he came from, you know, there's always this searchlight Nevada story of, you know, his father was an alcoholic, his mother, uh, you know, just, you know, they survived on her doing sort of laundry for the family, Uh, his tough roots. And um, he was, um, he was, he was a fighter. And uh, uh, that's one thing that um, definitely came through, you know, he began, he joined, uh, he, I think he joined the house of representatives as a congressman in 83, eventually became a Senator. I think he, he lost his first, uh, race as uh, to become Senator. But once he got in, he quickly rose. Uh, and I would, you'd have to say in terms of an accomplishing leader and holding his caucus together, uh, I don't know that we've had anybody ever other than uh, LBJ, uh, going back to Lyndon Johnson, who was the, the quintessential leader of the Senate. But uh, Harry Reid held his caucus together. And during the Obama years, uh, I think people will look back on that as probably one of the most uh, you know, accomplished time period. Uh, Dodd-Frank was passed. Obamacare was passed. Uh, and remember, he was holding together a caucus of 60 people. Uh, and then in 2010, they suffered uh, a loss in Massachusetts when Scott Brown won the Senate there in an off-year election or, or a replacement election after Teddy Kennedy uh, had passed away. So, uh, But I think his time period with uh, the Obama administration – and uh, it was really his crowning achievement. And, you know, look right now what we have in terms of the Democrats' ability to hold their caucus together. Uh, you know, I don't know that if he wasn't the leader right now, whether or not he could actually get it done. But he was viewed as tough as nails. So when I, uh, when I worked in the Senate, I worked with uh, Senator Hatch. And I'll remember one time I had to accompany Hatch when he was on This Week with George Stephanopoulos. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, Hatch never cursed or anything like that. And uh, so who did he end up debating on the show? Uh, Harry Reid. Uh, and so he got back into the car with me and he said, first off, did you think I did well? And I said, you know, did I do a good job? I said, of course, sir, you did a great job. And then he goes, that that Harry Reid, he goes, you know, he's a Mormon, just like me. But he is so obnoxious and went on and on and on about how Harry Reid had, you know, beat him up during the uh, debate. Uh, and there were times when I was with Hatch on the floor of the Senate and he tried to get something from Harry Reid. And Harry Reid was tough as nails. But if he was on your side, you wanted him on your side because Hatch would ask him for things and Reid would just say, nah, sorry, I can't do that. No, sorry, can't do that. But he was pretty uh, an impressive person uh, and uh, a person who definitely, though, was loyal to people who worked in the Senate. Even if you were Republican or whatever, if you had paid your dues there, he was going to help you uh, in any way uh, that he could. And, for example, he helped a good friend of mine to get confirmed as uh, the head of the antitrust division. And that just shows you they were at each other's throats. Uh, when they worked against each other, but then when it came down to it, he helped him to get confirmed as a Republican. So um, real loss for for everybody, uh, and we sort of pine for the old days in a way to, you know, seeing a, at least the Democrats uh, operate together. So uh, once again, I share many of those thoughts, Mike. Uh, he was a, a man of slight build, but he was tough as nails. He came, uh, I don't know if the phrase still exists, dirt poor, but he was dirt poor growing up, and he rose to literally the highest levels of power in this country. And that really spoke to me about how this this country, America, is still a land of opportunity. And if you work hard and you are smart and you get a few breaks— it really doesn't matter what your economic situation that you're born into. You can uh, literally move to uh, the highest levels. Uh, he uh, was a master of the Senate. Uh, I think uh, you pointed to Lyndon Johnson. I would point to Robert Byrd. Since Byrd, uh, I'm not sure we've had such an accomplished master of the Senate, Arcania. Uh, and uh, you're right. We, uh, we yearn for that type of Senate leader now. Uh, but we also had a lot of compliance stories come up this week, Mike. So uh, let me pitch it over to you and uh, ask about no pit poaching in the defense industry. Well, this was a big story, and I think it also is something to watch out for next year, is that the Department of Justice, going back to 2016, uh, warned businesses and individuals uh, that they were going to criminally prosecute illegal agreements or wage fixing in labor markets. And, um, you know, Tom, I always say the government tells you what they're going to do in advance, way in advance, and then they, then they do it, and no one should be surprised. Uh, DOJ uh, has already started bringing criminal cases against companies, executives, and HR professionals. Um, and now we've seen perhaps the biggest case because now we see it's what I called uh, the two-step where they brought, uh, they charged an individual, they arrested him on a criminal complaint, and he was the former director of global engineering services at Pratt Whitney. And this is all taking place in Connecticut. And now we, uh, and uh, Patel, this guy, uh, Mahesh Patel, carried out the conspiracy and was sort of, uh, let's call it the classic hub-and-spoke type of conspiracy where uh, it was an agreement among uh, HR professionals or you know, what's called outsourcing professionals uh, in the engineering and the defense engineering industry. And the reason what's interesting to me is they arrested Patel, and I think they tried to flip him, uh, and you know, said to, they brought him in. They said, look, Patel, if you want to cooperate and give up the rest of the conspiracy, but we know what's going on, and this is a chance for you to cut, cut yourself some slack. Well, Patel obviously rejected them because uh, within a week they had unsealed an indictment that charged uh, five remaining defendants, six executives altogether, uh, and suggesting that uh, – 
Patel did not cooperate. And uh, so now they, we have a big uh, conspiracy indictment against uh, officials from Pratt Whitney, Quest Global Services, Belcan Engineering Group, Scient and Parametric Solutions, and uh, one of, you know, including high-level executives like a president. And the, uh, there basically were um, eight members of a conspiracy, co-conspirators, and there may be already cooperating co-conspirators, uh, and they're charged with running a pretty long conspiracy for uh, 10 years at least, uh, involving six companies where they would agree not to bid on each other or not to pay uh, above certain amounts for outsourcing engineering uh, services in the um, defense industry. And, and apparently this was during a difficult time and there was a shortage of uh, defense engineers. So it was a way to keep the prices down. And they agreed not to poach, as Tom used the term, uh, each other's employees or, uh, let's say, engineers. A big case because this is, uh, I think it's going to grow because I think a lot of people didn't believe what the Justice Department was saying or they just continued in these types of uh, operations thinking it was okay. This is an important compliance reminder to everybody in the HR field, no matter what industry. Be careful because they've already gone after healthcare. They now are in the defense industry, and I'll, and I'll bet you they come back to high tech eventually. Mike, I've worked in uh, the energy industry in-house in uh, various corporations, and we were always prevented by our contracts from going to a competitor. Does this no-poach uh, make uh, illegal the employment contracts as well, or is it the anti-competitive behavior which, between corporations which says, we won't poach your employee? Right. It's the, it's the horizontal activity. So it would be among competitors uh, or among purchasers, in this case, among purchasers of labor services. Now, when you hire an employee, you can say, you know, you don't go to these types of places or whatnot. Uh, you know, you agree or you have uh, non-competes and things like that. So, uh, but this is a big deal. Um, look, they already went in and they brought the first cases in, uh, I believe, in Texas and Dallas uh, in the uh, physical therapy field where there was uh, agreements not to, not to poach or hire each other's employees or um, not to pay certain amounts. It's, and we had a very interesting decision from the district court there which upheld the uh, criminal application of the Sherman Act, 15 U.S.C. Uh, Section 1, to uh, horizontal agreements among employers with regard to employees. And it was a, it's not a very close case, at least the way the judge wrote it. So this is a big warning for everybody. And frankly, I think, you know, as we see the antitrust division ramp up uh, under the Biden administration, we're going to see more and more cases uh, like this. But the, let me just mention that uh, there was a great article written about this by Jay DeVecchio and Lisa Phelan in a uh, MoFo client alert uh, on this topic. And I would uh, recommend that people, you know, catch up with it there. Mike, I, uh, there was a great piece in the always great uh, DNO diary uh, by Kevin LaCroix, uh, uh, also UM Law, Go Blue beat Georgia. Uh, and uh, so I thought that would be interesting to talk about because I really wasn't aware of what a bump-up provision is, but it's E&O coverage for directors and officers. And I know you and I have both thought, talked, written, and podcasted about uh, directors, boards of directors and their obligations under Caremark and how that's expanded over the past 18 months or so. So I'm always interested in what uh, D&O coverage for directors uh, issues there are. And bump-up coverage is where uh, it's a type of lawsuit where the value, alleged acquisition price is too low and uh, shareholders sue and the price gets bumped up. And the question is whether that is covered under a standard D&O policy. And so the authors of the piece, uh, Barry Buckman and Michael Scanlon, walk us through the kind of background of bump-up coverage uh, and or the bump up exclusion, it's called BUE, BU, 
and what you need to do to protect yourself as a director. Uh, Mike, uh, this is one other area which just puts so much pressure on directors now. You and I tend to look at it from the Caremart and compliance perspective, but boards of directors now, I think, are under uh, really increasing pressure and a professionalization of a class of boards of directors and members of boards, I think, is really called for now. The uh, former A-list boards consisting of former secretaries of state, four-star generals, <laughs> business school uh, deans, uh, and other people who are incredibly smart, have been incredibly successful, uh, but are basically useless on the uh, needed oversight a board must now exercise in a variety of areas. Uh, this is just one more thing that uh, boards need to worry about. But uh, it's a good reminder of the different coverages available and uh, for I- individuals considering going on boards of directors. Uh, if there's anyone of that class listening to this podcast, I would urge you to check out uh, this article so you can uh, try to protect yourself uh, going forward. Uh, Mike, we've got a couple. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say um, the article uh, also, you know, Tom, it, it pointed out another big risk area, and you know how risk averse we are, uh, is um, uh, mergers and acquisitions. And apparently there's, and I was not aware of this, to the extent it was, was that there's a lot of shareholder litigation relating to that. And that's, that to me is just another warning area for us, you know. Uh, Mike, next we had an article from our, I think both of our friends, Lisa Shore Babin. I uh, knew Lisa when back uh, when she was with Dun & Bradstreet. And uh, what does she look at? Um, and now actually she started her own uh, consulting firm, but what does she see uh, from 2021 and really going into 2022 that caught your eye? Well, uh, first off, she's just a terrific person. And the article she wrote was really inspirational, Tom, in terms of her own transformation, career path change, writing, um, and some of the people that she's read uh, that have helped influence her and opening this uh, new consulting operation, but also talking about how 2021 was a strange year in comparison to 2020, which we all know was strange because of the pandemic, but how there was still, uh, you know, sort of lingering uh, after effects in 2021. But what she talks about, I think, are you know, some of the big stories that occurred during the year, references to, uh, you know, how we saw unethical behavior at Activision and other companies, Um, but also sort of talking more about the compliance community and how much the compliance community is there for everybody in a supportive way. And, you know, I've always said, Tom, that uh, compliance people are a lot nicer than lawyers, uh, because they're more collaborative uh, and uh, compliance people just by their nature uh, work well with other people because that's what they have to do in their job. And so she talks about the inspiration uh, from uh, people uh, in sort of in the compliance field. It's, you know, it's, an, it's a niche field. We always say that, but it's getting bigger and bigger. And I think she wrote just a, a wonderful, inspiring article. I would commend everybody. Uh, to read it about her own sort of path and her own observations. Uh, So, Mike, uh, next up I saw, I came across a pretty interesting article by Jason Morris in uh, Compliance Week, although Jason is with the International Compliance Association, and it's he poses the question, should lawyers and accountants be filing more um, suspicious activity reports? I'm going to leave accountants to the side because neither one of us are an accountant. But um, And his article is limited to the United Kingdom. But I thought he raised a really interesting question, and I think it's a dialogue we're going to have more and more of as we move into 2022 and beyond, which are uh, the extent to which lawyers uh, may be facilitating um, unscrupulous activity through uh, purchase money, uh, Uh, sitting in trust accounts or cash transactions uh, where they hold the money and then release it when a transaction closes. And it's always been sort of a black hole because it's uh, allegedly regulated by state by state by the bars. But as we move forward from the AML law of 2020 
and now into uh, FinCEN and Department of Treasury's uh, respective regulations, I think we're going to see law firms and others who may advise on these issues having a lot more scrutiny, particularly if they are handling funds. Uh, And I mentioned lawyers' trust accounts because that's the one I'm most familiar with, uh, that money goes into a trust account either to hold for a client or hold for another reason. It could be monies from a settlement of a claim, a lawsuit, or something else. It could be monies that is being held in escrow uh, to put as a down payment on a piece of art, a piece of furniture, a piece of property. Uh, And it could be the full payment, uh, which is released when when the contract closes. So we may start to see more uh, dialogue around should lawyers and law firms and specifically lawyer trust accounts have more scrutiny. Now, that bumps up against attorney-client privilege, which most states still hold as sacrosanct, uh, but uh, because of the ubiquitousness of AML regulations, particularly after the AML law of 2020, uh, I just wonder if this is something we're going to see at least discussed here in the United States. Do you have any thoughts one way or the other? Uh, oh, no, definitely. Jason's, uh, Jason's article is really timely because one of the, you know, from the national strategy on countering corruption, uh, you hit the nail right on the head. They're going to be targeting uh, gatekeepers. And this is, uh, and lawyers are considered a gatekeeper in a sense. Uh, and they believe that gatekeepers have facilitated a lot of corrupt, you know, transactions, uh, and they're going to start to put KYC and due diligence requirements uh, on lawyers and accountants in the transactions that you're talking about, Tom. Uh, and uh, I think that's a this could be a huge issue, and I'm sure the bar associations and the ABA are going to get uh, involved in this discussion. Because FinCEN is about to, you know, has been charged with taking a look at this issue. They already obviously proposed uh, expansion of the real estate, uh, you know, targeting orders uh, to make them national uh, in one sense. But I think that Jason is on to a big issue. And uh, the national strategy as it becomes implemented, which I know you have uh, like a long series on on your blog about it. And uh, I think it's going to be a a big deal. So we got to watch this. Uh, And frankly, you know what, it's about time. In some sense, there are some lawyers out there who play close to the line. I, I never have. I know you haven't. uh, And I think there are going to be some interesting issues that come up. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back with more on this week in FCPA. Uh, Mike, this is my shocked face. I know. Here we go, Tom. Because don't, don't sugarcoat it. <laughs> Tell us how you really think about this one, Tom. Uh, so our good friend Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, wrote about fraud in the taxi business. Tell me, I I should or shouldn't be shocked? Shocked. Uh, you should not be shocked. Shocked. You always uh, have a way of. Uh, underscoring this point, Tom, because Matt wrote a really interesting article about an SEC case enforcement action brought against uh, none other than uh, the leader of the uh, and the owner of the medallion taxi, uh, you know, assets. And the medallions in New York, for example, are the way are bought and sold as a commodity because they allow you to uh, operate a taxi. Well, this business was going along fairly well until Uber, Lyft, and all the others hit the New York taxi market or hit the taxi market in general. And then all of a sudden, these valuable assets uh, dropped to a very low level, uh, like even $3 per medallion. So uh, there was fraud in the sense of they were trying to get investors to buy a, a portion of the company, and there was misrepresentations made as to the value of the assets. Now, just for you geeks out there, uh, you may recall that in the Michael Cohen case, uh, the Trump's lawyer, 
before he flipped, uh, they were looking at his fraud and charged with fraud related to his own medallions that he had bought uh, and invested in uh, and then tried to use uh, for loan uh, valuation pro- uh, purposes. So Matt writes a brilliant article, uh, tongue-in-cheek, but also uh, underscoring some important principles that, yes, even applies in, with regard to medallions in the taxi business. Intr- uh, another great article from Matt. So, Mike, I guess uh, uh, what this brought up for me was really thinking about how the taxi business, particularly in New York, uh, was as as closed a shop other than the American Bar Association <laughs> there <laughs> right, is, right. and they really controlled the taxi market and medallions uh, were worth literally hundreds of thousands of dollars because you had to have a medallion to have a city licensed taxi cab. Well, first Uber comes along and says, uh, "We don't need no stinking medallion. We're Uber," and uh, right. that uh, really decimated. The value, and then in 2020, of course, we had the pandemic, and people weren't right. going anywhere. And in New York, you could literally stand on your balcony and look out and see no one on the road and no one on the street. And so that really further decimated uh, the medallions, uh, medallioned cabs. And and so this company financed people who wanted to or were able to purchase a medallion because they were a limited number. That's why their value was so high. And so here in 2020, nearly 2022, we have the continued fallout from the development and disruption of Uber. Uh, And I see that as a straight line forward. And now the the financing companies who obviously were hurting because their borrower were hurting and may not have been able to make payments uh, one, the values dropped so much, so it was essentially like having a house underwater, but then they couldn't drive because nobody was on the streets uh, for three, six, nine months in New York City. Uh, it's changed, obviously, now, and people are back on the streets, but uh, that's a lot to make up. So I was intrigued to, to really see the, what I saw as a continued disruption of Uber and a direct impact from the uh, pandemic. Mike, in uh, our next article, it's the first of two articles from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. And for any listeners who do not uh, subscribe to this, you really should, uh, because it has uh, a wide variety of articles on a wide variety of topics. Uh, Generally, under corporate governance, it can be board of directors. We're going to talk about one of those later. We're going to, this article is about uh, ESG asset allocation. And I thought, uh, the first half of the article before they, they, they have a pretty robust formula for um, allocating ESG assets, <clears throat> but it had a really good uh, series of articles or, or points about how a compliance practitioner should think about ESG. So the starting point is told from the top. Your investment policy statement is your policies and procedures. Uh, then you begin to manage those, and here uh, for these authors, purpose. It's your strategic asset allocation. That sounds to me just like uh, assessing your risk and then managing these risks. So I would urge every compliance practitioner to read this. I still, I think you and I might disagree a little bit, Mike, on uh, the role of (coughs) compliance and ESG, but whoever's heading up a corporate ESG program should read this and really understand how to think through your overall ESG program. Yeah, no, I, uh, we we do disagree on that point, you know, about compliance's role, but there's no doubt that, for example, and we'll get to this when we talk later, Tom, uh, but ESG is just a, a powerful force for the year. It is probably the number one story in my view. So um, this is a good, timely, uh, you know, article. And, every, uh, and I just want to second you on uh, I follow the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, and they have ter- terrific work is, and terrific uh, contributors there. So what's up with the ESG app? Well, the ESG app, uh, I looked at it's on uh, Lawrence Heim on Practical ESG. Take a look at this. It's really interesting. It gives you a way to crowdsource voting uh, shares in public companies and uh, sort of earn leverage the power of your shares into a larger block 
a brilliant idea uh, that Lawrence uh, talks about in his uh, posting in Practical ESG because it allows you to, number one, uh, try to get more ESG-type issues on the, uh, let's say, annual stockholder uh, meeting agenda. It also allows you, uh, and the SEC is uh, opening up, they're in the process of opening up uh, you know, proxy uh, regulation to allow for more issues to come up. And so this is uh, an, it's an app that you can put on your uh, phone uh, called Iconic. And basically you can uh, dedicate and crowdsource your shares with other people of like-minded um, political views in terms of ESG. Really interesting crowdsourcing in yet another forum uh, Tom, uh, and we remember when we were younger when crowdsourcing started, but uh, now in the ESG context is really fascinating. So take a look at this article. It's a good one. Lawrence Heim, H-E-I-M, in Practical ESG. Uh, and then uh, I have to intro uh, Mr. Iconic Corporate Board rep, uh, Lawyer Marty Lipton, uh, wrote an article, Tom, that you uh, were sort of fascinated by. Uh, I think it's an annual thing that he does, uh, the Harvard Law School Forum, again, on corporate governance. So, Mike, uh, I came across Marty Lipton in uh, 1985 when he testified at mm. the uh, Pennzoil Texaco trial. He was the deal mm. lawyer for Texaco on that deal. Uh, so that's a long time, and he has been literally at the top of the M&A profession from that day, uh, long before that day, but from at least 85 till today. And he is well-respected. Uh, Wachtell Lipton, uh, you know, when you have your name on a, a wall in New York City, in my mind, that's a pretty big deal. But so when Marty... Well, well, wait, but wait, Tom, my name is on walls, but I can't tell you which graffiti walls they are. Uh, in New York City. <laughs> well, those are those are interior walls that are perhaps visited uh, from time to time when you need to relieve yourself, as opposed to on the outside of a building. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we'll leave that one aside. Uh, but um, but he really gives a couple of things that I thought were important to talk about. Once again, from the compliance perspective, although he's talking about boards of directors. And uh, he really echoed a, t a theme I tried to uh, articulate a little bit earlier, Mike, which is how difficult the roles of boards have become. And he pointed to the Exxon board losing three seats that Exxon had nominated for um, and lost to um, uh, a company, uh, and that this is really... Uh, part of the, the new paradigm that he's seeing as um, a part of representing boards. And he goes on to explain that boards of directors now have um, to include uh, value creation, obviously, as a part of their role. But he emphasizes in a, it's in a complex ecosystem of stakeholders, and this is certainly something you and I talked about when the Business Roundtable released their statement on the purpose of corporation. But what I got from Marty's article was uh, you have to look at employees, you have to look at customers, you have to look at suppliers, you have to look at communities, you have to look at more, even more broadly, society and the environment at large. And if I could tie this back to the, the um, kind of commentary you and I have engaged in around boards of directors and the Caremark decision, <clears throat> that uh, boards have to take a much more active role. This does not mean they're managing, but they have to engage in meaningful oversight. And the last big Caremark case, of course, was Boeing, <clears throat> where uh, the court criticized Boeing for um, accepting information from senior management and not questioning it. And that seemed to me to be extraordinarily close to the business judgment rule, meaning if a board chose to, okay, management says it, we trust management, that's going to be good enough for now. Well, the Delaware court said, no, that's no longer good enough. And so uh, I really took away from uh, Marty's article 
the complexity of the roles of boards, but they have to engage in uh, not oversight, but active oversight. And I know you've talked about this quite a bit, but it's going to become only more complex going forward. Well, look, uh, you know, Marty is uh, a leader uh, and he's, a, you know, conservative uh, practitioner in this field. And so when he's making comments like this, Tom, this is a big deal uh, because uh, in some respects, I feel that board governance and expectations and the stakeholders, particularly shareholders and, and community uh, groups and whatnot, and society in general with ESG is at the forefront, uh, are demanding more. And uh, it's and you have stakeholders who are going to demand more, and there's going to be more tension. But I do think that the courts are actually um, reflecting more of that than I thought they would have. I thought that the courts would have stayed more conservative and sort of thrown things back uh, in the, into the plane of spaces. And I think what we're seeing, though, is that even the courts are influenced here uh, from Delaware. And we've talked uh, at length about this. But I think, uh, you know, we need a professional class of board members. It's just not going to be the boards that sit there, board members who have retired uh, after years and years of service in the business uh, economy. They're going to have to be compliance professionals. You're going to have to have uh, other types of professionals who bring uh, an acumen other than just knowing finance and business. That used to be the qualifications. I think that's changing. Mike, I uh, wanted to end uh, the stories part of this podcast by asking uh, you and I to maybe reflect on some of the top stories, events, or issues that we saw in 2021. And uh, I think uh, you've been at least thinking about this, maybe looking uh, to write about it. But in reviewing the 2021 year in compliance, obviously we had very few FCPA cases, but that really allowed me to focus on other issues, other speeches, uh, other items that that came up. So uh, I ended up concluding that this may be as significant a year as we've had in in quite some time. But I just wanted to, to... kind of tick off the three FCPA cases, because I thought they each had one message that I really think or hope compliance professionals will uh, take to heart going forward. In January, we had Deutsche Bank, and probably all you need to know is they're Donald Trump's bankers or were, uh, but they were a two-time FCPA recidivist, and they obviously had a culture that did not um, value compliance. And when we tie that a little bit later into the Lisa Monaco speech, I think culture is going to become a much more important factor for the Department of Justice. The second case was Amec Foster Wheeler. And this literally started with a high-end men's tailor shop in New York. And the screenplay for the fictional movie about this mm-hmm. only got better after that. But the thing that struck me about this case, Mike, was something we really we've touched on over the years. But this was the first case where someone, a company, tried to pull out of paying bribes, and the bribe receiver said, "Oh no, no, no! In fact, you're going to increase my bribe payments." So the the bottom right. line is, once they got their hooks into you, they got their hooks into you, and if you pull out, well, they're going to pick up the phone and make a call, and they're going to be the first one in. So uh, once you cross that line, you're, you're sunk and you're hooked. And then we had WPP. And in this case, Mike, we had in um, one business unit, we had seven separate whistleblower reports from one whistleblower uh, before the company uh, took it seriously enough to retain uh, high-quality investigative counsel and uncover the bribery, fraud, and corruption. And if you get a whistleblower report in, I think the um, SEC has announced over $1 billion now in whistleblower payments made. <clears throat> and the AML Act of 2021, 2020 rather, created additional classes of whistleblowers for other U.S. government agencies. So we're going to see the U.S. government use whistleblowers, and we may see an explosion of whistleblower growth. I'm going to tie that into the uh, Biden administration strategy on countering corruption. So those really were the three key points I wanted to to raise from the FCPA cases. And uh, did you have any other angles on those cases? 
well, those cases, I think, underscore uh, what I think is one of the more uh, important uh, underlying themes that you sort of hit on here. Lisa Monaco, who is uh, nobody's fool and is a tough uh, prosecutor, uh, made it clear that if you don't have an effective ethics and compliance program, you're going to be uh, held even more accountable. And that the expectation is that you do have that. So I thought uh, in this whole uh, avenue that she talked about, uh, to me, underscored an issue which I think the cases all point to, which is you better have an independent uh, CCO and compliance operation backed by internal controls that require their approval or sign off on various uh, actions and the ability to go to the board directly, obviously. Uh, And what we see in all three of the cases you pointed out, Tom, was just the complete absence of a culture of compliance where a CCO was given resources, independence, autonomy, uh, and expected to do their job. And I think uh, Lisa Monaco is telling everybody, uh, you know, buckle up. Uh, This is going to get – this is going to change. And we've already seen, I think, the beginning, right at the end of the year, we had the NatWest, National West uh, Bank enforcement actions, and there were two important things that were included in that. One was they appointed a compliance monitor, an independent compliance monitor, the first one in a few years, uh, in, and totally justified. Uh, NatWest is actually the old Royal Bank of Scotland, and you can't change your name and change your spots and change your compliance history. And number two, they reviewed all of their, in their settlement papers, they reviewed all of their civil and criminal uh, enforcement history. Uh, It was put out there, and they took that into account in deciding to put in an independent compliance monitor and in deciding on the uh, total uh, penalty that was going to be paid. So that, to me, was important. Uh, the I think the Justice Department has gotten tired of seeing situations where uh, people needed to respond to red flags or somebody tried to raise a red flag uh, and that compliance is not doesn't have the authority that they should have to respond, retain the right people to do an investigation and let the chips fall where they may. So uh, that's the that's the message that's coming from the Justice Department. And I think. Your point, overall point, Tom, of that this is really a setup for a big year and a big set of trends is absolutely correct because right now everything is lined up. 2022 is going to be an enforcement year like we've never seen before. I'm convinced of it, not just in FCPA, but I think across the board. So that brings us to the Lisa Monaco speech. And Mike, I drew three uh, key points, maybe four from that speech. Number one, uh, the reinstatement of the Yates memo, meaning companies now have to turn over all information around uh, about anyone who was involved in bribery and corruption, uh, not just those who uh, were higher on the chain or whether there was some question in their involvement. Number two, uh, rejection of the Benkowski memo uh, and the, how the DOJ will use monitors going forward, not in a punitive manner, but to extend their reach to, number one, Make sure companies comply with the uh, agreements they've made, whether it be a DPA or NPA or some other settlement agreement. Number two, uh, to get companies to uh, for, for monitors to be used as an asset, so companies can have a more uh, effective com- best practices compliance program. And number three, to uh, act as a tripwire to hopefully prevent, uh, det- detect, and then prevent recidivism before it becomes a full blown second FCPA violation. Uh, But there's one other or a couple of other parts. She wrapped this around corporate culture. And you spoke to that in terms of NatWest. I spoke to it in terms of Deutsche Bank. And as part of the evaluation of corporations, she said that, as you noted, the DOJ will evaluate all your conduct, all your uh, settlements, all the enforcement actions against you, indeed all investigations. And the White Collar Bar in New York, they they went crazy over this. And particularly in the uh, ACI National FCPA Conference, there was a lot of criticism, questions, and commentary from the White Collar Defense Bar that how unfair this was just because you had a, 
environmental action five years ago doesn't mean that has any relevance to the uh, FCPA action. But I think, Mike, what they're missing is the point you just made. In the DOJ's mind, it's all about culture. If you've got a culture around environmental compliance and you're probably going to have a culture around anti-bribery, anti-corruption compliance and anti-money laundering compliance and trade sanction compliance and anti-discrimination compliance, and that if you have the right culture in place, uh, it's going to look be looked upon favorably by the Department of Justice. But if you've got a series of, well, we had some anti-competitive behavior, we had some environmental behavior, uh, yeah, we've had a few sexual harassment cases and maybe a sexual discrimination case, and uh, but those aren't tied together, and, and we're not a bad company. I, I think those days are, if not gone, uh, going out the window. And for me, the more I thought about the Monaco speech, that's the much bigger change, that the DOJ is going to look at your culture and how are you going to assess and measure and then document what you have done for your culture. And I think this is going to make the job of the chief compliance officer uh, much more important going forward. I totally agree. And I think, you know, we're, we're, t- we're getting into what I call the era of accountability, and um, part of this, Tom, I think dovetails with what we talked about earlier with the ESG movement. Once we start to uh, make ESG a fundamental aspect of corporate operations, that you have to have robust disclosure and you have to address in some way, what will go along with that is accountability. And I think the Justice Department is sensing uh, this need for accountability. And so, for example, you know, I disagree with the New York bar. My only point would, would be with regard to other enforcement actions is, you know, how is it relevant to this enforcement action? And it could be through the culture. Uh, and so that means if, if you don't have your culture in line, you're first off not going to meet your ESG requirements for governance. And, number two, and you'll be held accountable by the marketplace. And number two, the government is saying, we are also going to hold you accountable for that. So you hit on the, the proverbial uh, nail on, uh, on the head here in terms of its culture, its culture, its culture. Um, and we'll see where this comes out. But look, how many times did you and I dissect an FCPA case and say, you know, this obviously reflects uh, some fundamental gap at the top, some fundamental gap with the board oversight, some fundamental gap with the culture of the company as set by the CEO or whatever. So I think this is all going to come back together, and uh, it's going to be interesting, uh, this sort of era of enforcement and accountability that's going to begin, I think, in 2022. Watch out. It's going to be a big, uh, a big year. And Mike, at least for uh, my thoughts of 2021, I'd like to end with the Biden administration's strategy on countering corruption. And uh, many have panned it as uh, just so many words. You know, we've heard the government say we're against corruption before. But I thought there were three significant points that I think are going to drive the entire ABC effort going forward. Number one, uh, anti-corruption or the fight against corruption is now a national security issue of the United States. And that leads directly to number two, when an administration decides something's in the national security interest of the United States, the money spigot opens. And there's going to be resources thrown at this that you and I have never seen in our lifetime. And that's going to flow down from the government to the government contractors to the private sector, probably all the way down to people like you and me, because... Uh, the government's going to demand more technological solutions. The government's going to demand more innovation. Business as usual will not be sufficient. And so I think the resources, and I have no idea which way it's going to go or who's going to be the winner or losers out of this. I just know when the government says, you know, it's important to me, guess what? It gets important. And then really the last thing is, and you talked about accountability uh, I think uh, the government particularly and specifically called out whistleblowers somewhat based upon the SEC experience, but it expanded out to whistleblowers across the globe and to protecting whistleblowers wherever they may be. In that group of whistleblowers, for the first time, I saw the government talk about journalists and protecting journalists 
And so we had a great example of Francis Hagen, Hagen, uh, who was a whistleblower uh, involving Facebook. Uh, she went to the Wall Street Journal. And uh, then she was on 60 Minutes. And so before she testified before Congress, I assume she went to the SEC, an appropriate agency beforehand, but that's just an assumption. I don't know that. And so now we have whistleblowers going to the fourth estate, but we also have journalists breaking accountability stories, the Pandora Papers, the Paradise Papers, um, the Panama Papers. That was all journalists. Uh, And uh, I think we're going to see the government use information developed by journalists in a new and different way. In, in your part of the world, I'm listening to uh, the Fat Leonard podcast. And right. uh, the guy who's doing the podcast is one of the two Wall Street Journal reporters who broke the 1MDB scandal. Uh, so this guy's well-versed uh, in bribery and corruption, and he's doing this, this scandal involving uh, Fat Leonard, who is involved in bribery and corruption with the U.S. Navy. Multiple U.S. Navy officers have pled guilty. There's a group of six who have resisted pleading guilty and are going to trial in 2022 in San Diego. So, uh, and this is the first time I've really seen a podcast break this this type of story because Fat Leonard has never told his story publicly. He's told it to prosecutors, uh, but not publicly. So I think we're going to see more stories like this, of Francis Hagen, uh, testimony and, and uh, taking uh, documents to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and you have to say, uh, whatever you think of the journal uh, politically, which is that they are very conservative, they are incredibly robust when it comes to business reporting and uh, one of the world's leaders in that area. So when someone like the Wall Street Journal uh, publishes whistleblower allegations with documentary evidence, uh, that gets noticed. And so I think we're going to see a lot more accountability, a lot more accountability from different sources, a lot of resources thrown at the problem of the international scourge of bribery and corruption. And the more I think about the Biden administration's statement on countering corruption, the more I think it's going to be a game changer in ways, frankly, we can't see right now, Mike. Well, let me uh, jump on one bandwagon here uh, of several bandwagons. But, Tom, I, I don't know if you've listened to uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, put out a podcast on the Enron case uh, that was called Bad Bets, and it was really uh, fascinating. So, San Diego, we have our uh, we have our corruption out here, uh, and then Houston, we have the Enron scandal, and the story of the Wall Street Journal uh, breaking. It's it's put out by the two um, uh, reporters who broke Enron in the Wall Street Journal, and that just goes to I mean, it just makes your point you know, over and over again. Interesting. Interest. It's a great uh, podcast series to listen to. It's sort of, and I'm surprised it hasn't become a movie yet, but it probably will be. Well, let me just give you a little teaser then, Mike. I am okay. coming out in January with a podcast series on <clears throat> the Enron trial. Wow. By where my uh, guest is, the former Houston Chronicle, Chronicle business columnist who covered the entire trial. So I know a lot of people have focused on uh, 20 years, Sharon Watkins, and sort of everything from that angle. But uh, I wanted to focus on the trial because we're both trial geeks, and uh, it was a great trial. And it kind of put a cap on one of, I think, the Department of Justice's finest hours with the Enron Task Force. So uh, I've got that coming out uh, next month, so stay tuned for that. Terrific. Terrific. That'll be great. So, Mike, uh, we've got some podcasts to talk about. Uh, I'm going to start with a fun one, <coughs> excuse me, because uh, One Stone Creative co-founder Megan Doherty and I continue to share our love for all things Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, we are going through the entire MCU oeuvre. We're up to episode three, and we're doing a chronological <laughs> order, uh, not release date. So this one's Iron Man, and it was the first one released. It was huge when it was released, and uh, we had a lot of fun uh, looking at it. So if uh, you love the MCU like uh, Megan and I do, check out our podcast series on popcorn and compliance. What do you got for us, Mike? Trade compliance uh, director uh, to have on uh, this uh, the compliance life. And in part one, Matt details his academic career and early professional life. 
In part two, he moves into trade compliance. In part three, he moves into the director's chair. In episode four, Matt looks down the road uh, for uh, trade compliance. Uh, one note about your Marvel love, Tom, is that it's an absolute follow-on to your Star Trek series. Uh, so I can see that you're moving through the sort of science fiction um, universe in one way or another. So glad to see you're, you're in the Marvel universe. Uh, so, Mike, our next podcast, uh, you and I both have podcasts. Uh, we've been podcasting quite a while. They're sometimes us interviewing people, sometimes us pontificating on our own. Uh, but I had one join the Compliance Podcast Network that was really unique, and that's Professor Karen Woody with her new podcast, Classroom Insider. And Karen actually interviews students on her insider trading class. She teaches a class at WNL Law School, <coughs> the history of insider trading. And as part of that class, they had to study up on some area, and then Karen interviews them. And she's up to episode three, where she looks at narrowing the scope of the disclose or abstain rule. So if you're interested in insider trading at all, it's a fascinating exploration of this issue. <clears throat> and kudos to Karen for coming up with a really unique way. Uh, in fact, in a way I've not seen done where a professor uses their students not to research, but to actually be the guest and be the subject matter expert. So uh, check out Classroom Insider. Uh, Karen Woody, it's, it's a great series. Well, Karen's just a top-notch person, uh, Tom, and I know uh, you've spent a lot of time sort of reviewing some issues with her lately. Uh, she's just, uh, besides her own compliance uh, uh, podcast, uh, she's just a great person to listen to. We can all listen uh, and learn uh, a lot from her. One other good source on trade compliance, I guess this is our trade compliance, is uh, Miller & Chevalier, the law firm. Uh, they have a great podcast called Embargoed, uh, and there's a great uh, review, 2021 review, uh, put out uh, just recent. well, put out in the middle of December. Uh, I'd commend it to everybody. It's a lightning round sort of discussion of the top sanctions and export control stories, including, you know, the Wowie CFO case, virtual currency and ransomware, and China, 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 uh, all the actions that the U.S. government is uh, taking to impact trade with uh, China. So check it out. Great uh, podcast. So whatever our listeners may think of Mike and I, whatever they may think of Jay and I in terms of two old women nattering, we got nothing on Tim and Brian. They get going, and you can. It's uh, the chemistry is there, the magic's there, and they just feed off each other. <clears throat> You'll learn a lot, and frankly, it's a ton of fun listening to them. And those guys know trade compliance, so check out Embargoed. Mike, it's January, so I am doing my annual <clears throat> 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. Uh, this comes from my book, The Compliance Handbook, Second Edition, which I'm updating for a third edition. So I've rewritten the 31 days, and uh, if you are new to compliance or you're senior in compliance, there's enough in this podcast series for both of you. Uh, it will give you the basics of designing, implementing, or enhancing a best practices compliance program. Uh, it will be about eight minutes per day of your time with one or two key points and then three key takeaways of things that you can implement at little or no cost for your compliance program. So check out 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program beginning January 1st and running through January 31st. And if you act now, if you act now, you can also order the Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition. Uh, I commend it to everybody. I, say, uh, I always tell people it's not about compliance. It's about business, and it's about uh, how to run an effective business while making sure you have an effective compliance program. So congratulations again, Tom, and uh, looking forward to your new 31 days. Well, Mike, uh, as you know, this is the last This Week in FCPA of 2021. I can't think of a better friend uh, to share it with. So you want to say uh, goodbye and Happy New Year to all our listeners for this episode? Well, Tom, thank you for all. Most importantly, thank you for all that you do for all of us in compliance. Uh, I met you at the years and years ago, it seems like, Tom. And, uh, you know, you've been a professional colleague that has always welcomed new thoughts, new ideas, and promoted 
uh, the compliance profession. So if it wasn't for you, who knows, uh, we would need a voice of compliance like you. So thank you for everything that you do. Thank you to everybody who listens. The podcast network is just uh, the compliance podcast network is a terrific resource. And we thank you all for that. Um, So have a great new year. All the best to uh, your terrific family and to all you compliance professionals out there. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this final episode of This Week in FCPA for 2021. I hope you'll join us again in 2022 when Jay Rosen returns and we weekly take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. If you've ever wanted to start a podcast, now is the best time to do so that I am aware of. So give me a shout at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. We look forward to visiting with you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.